0: Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Agorist. Today we had on a very special guest, Franklin. I had the pleasure of seeing him speak at the Rogue Food Conference, and we had a lovely conversation about gold and silver, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, I thought it was just absolutely great. If you just want to give your your opinion real quick, Rob.
1: Yeah, it was an excellent discussion. I, uh, I learned a lot. Yeah. You know. <laughs> kind of an agress without really knowing it you know it was, it was good to, to get away from the theories and and kind of you know what you should do and talk about you know how to actually do it um, so very knowledgeable guy you know you know not someone you're going to run into you know in the street but we had a very very uh very fortunate experience of talking to him so it's a good time
0: i completely agree so without further ado let's get into the show the show franklin thank you how you doing today
2: pretty good i'm still vertical <laughs> hard to I'm still take nourishment yep hard to argue with
0: that logic uh we got franklin here with us everybody and of course i've got my co-host rob how are you doing rob
1: i'm doing good no complaints here you you staying vertical Yep, doing my best.
0: There you go. Woke up six feet above the ground instead of six feet under it. I like it.
1: Always a good day.
0: So for those of you who were not uh, able to attend the Rogue Food Conference at Polyface Farms um, a week ago, I had the pleasure of going with a couple friends of mine, and there were a whole slew of speakers that were there that day, and each one brought value um, to the crowd, and each one did a really good job, but I got to hear the opportunity to, I had the opportunity to hear Franklin speak about local economics and hard money and sound money. Um, and I absolutely just had to have him on the show. I recorded it and let Rob listen to it and he agreed. It was just absolutely had to happen if he was open open to it. So I went up to him and he was more than willing and very kind to join us today. So, Uh, Franklin, why don't you give us a little background about yourself?
2: Okay, well, I grew up in, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and, uh, went, went to school there, graduated from college there, and, uh, then after two years in the Army, I retired from the Army and, uh, went to graduate school at Tulane and the Free University of Berlin in, uh, 1980, I started brokering physical gold and silver and I began publishing a monthly newsletter, The Money Changer. You can go to that website. It's the-moneychanger.com. Uh, there, don't go to The Money Changer without the dash because that's a porno site and I have nothing to do with that. That's not my website. <laughs> I'll, I'll also publish sure. A, Please, sure. I also publish a daily commentary on the gold and silver markets. And if you go to the-moneychanger.com, you can sign up for that. It's free. And I've published about usually four days a week at least. Um, I've written a number of books. I've written or co-authored four books. In 1993 with Jim Blanchard, I wrote uh, Silver Bonanza about the silver market. And um, I've also had my problems with the government. I had kind of a, well, a 14 year battle uh, over the money issue with the IRS and the state of Tennessee. In 1991, uh, the IRS indicted me and my wife and a bunch of other people 15 other people in federal court for conspiracy to delay and defeat the IRS and willful failure to file income tax returns because I had opened a gold and silver bank. And so the the purpose of that was not to avoid the IRS. The purpose of that was gold and silver back into circulation to enable people to use gold and silver money because they've been, even though we've got a constitutional and legal and common law right to gold and silver money. We don't have any because it doesn't circulate. Um, anyway, we were all acquitted in, on the 9th of July, 1991, and then I had to face, face state charges and fight that. But um, since 2000, I really haven't had a lot of trouble with them. We uh, In 1999, my wife and I and our sister, uh, Seven six of our seven children moved out to Middle Tennessee to a place about two miles, about two hours south of Nashville from Memphis. And um we started farming and we learned a whole lot about how much we didn't know. So that that pretty much brings us up to date. My, uh, I live here uh five of my um Five of my children and 19 of my grandchildren live within about 15 minutes of me. So it's a pretty good life. That sounds, that sounds amazing.
0: Honestly, 19 grandchildren. That's, that's uh you're a blessed man and you get to farm. That That's awesome. Right. Um, sounds like a little bit of a bumpy road along the way, but I, I Did I pick up correctly, you started in 1980 with gold and silver? That was kind of the beginning?
2: That's right, and that's also no accident. That's also the year that gold and silver peaked. Silver hit $50 and gold hit $850. Wow. So is that what
0: led you to kind of go down that route, or was there another factor that came into play that kind of steered you to gold and silver?
2: Well, you know, this is the craziest thing. You know what steered me into gold and silver? Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan, of all people. In 1967, about two or three weeks before I got married, I was working in a hospital and I was down the pharmacy during during my supper break and um, I saw a book there Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal and it was a collection of essays by followers of Ayn Rand and one of those was Alan Greenspan and so Greenspan wrote in there about how gold was the only real money and how you couldn't have an economy without gold and silver money. Well you can but I mean about how it wrecked people financially to, to do it and so forth and so on. So I just picked right up on that and I ran with it. And so since that time, I've been, you know, studying the money issue and, and, uh, gold and silver, the history of money. And I, it's not really an obsession, but it comes pretty close to it, I guess. We call it a passion. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. that, 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 churches it up a whole lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it makes it seem less uh, crazy when you say you're just passionate about something. You know, you have a, a very big interest in it. Right. So when I heard you speak at the Rogue Food Conference, it was very interesting because you were the only exception to this, but everyone spoke about primarily food, a lot about raw milk in the usda and the fda um a lot about covid and whatnot and you know we don't have to jump into that today but you spoke about money and then tied it back to agriculture with the the fordson tractor i believe in 1917 is that correct right right what what drew the link between those two for you? Like when you looked back throughout history, what, why the Fordson tractor? Because a lot of people just jumped to the federal reserve, which, you know, wasn't established in 1917. Um, What made you jump to the tractor?
2: Well, let me, let me just first throw in something I said when we, when I opened up, my remarks there, and that is that the greatest weapon against your freedom is not government bureaucracies and uh, bureaucrats. The greatest threat to your th- freedom is the monetary system, because it's it's a rigged game. the The monetary system is rigged to steal from you, and it sets up a system uh, uh, a system where the the government can spend as much money as it wants. And if it's a deficit, then the Federal Reserve just monetizes those dollars. And what that means is they're stealing from you every single day the sun comes up, every day. And they're making it impossible for you to accumulate wealth and to accumulate a fam- uh, an estate for your family they they make you debt slaves. See, all the money in the United States is borrowed into existence. You follow what I'm saying? It, it's right. all borrowed into existence. Okay, well, what that means is that in any given year, they must inflate, they must create enough new money to pay the interest on all the debt. So, let me, let me give you a little parable. This, I call this the parable of the cards. Just imagine there are five fellas stranded on a desert island. And they're bored out of their minds. There's nothing to do. And one of these five fellas, who we'll call banker, has a deck of cards, 52 cards. So he goes to the other four and he says, listen, fellas, why don't you play cards? I've got a deck here and I'll loan you each of you, 13 cards, and you can play cards and while away the time. The only thing is you'll have to give me a lien on, you'll have to put up all your personal possessions as collateral for the loan. And at the end of the hour, all you have to do is pay me back 14 cards. Now, at the end of the first hour, somebody's going to be bankrupt, aren't they? Because they're not... They're not but 52 cards in the deck, four times 13, so somebody's gonna be bankrupt. And that's gonna continue until the bank owns everything. And this is the point that I, I wanted to make, that if you could create money out of thin air, and the, the Congress gave to the banks in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, the power to create money out of thin air, and force us to take it because they made those their notes legal tender. If you could create money out of thin air, how much would you create? A thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, or would you just keep on printing until you owned everything in the economy and all the politicians you could buy? That's that. I mean, that's just inevitable. It, it's and that's exactly. The situation we're in today, okay, they don't own every single thing, but they own a lot. A lot. The banks own a lot. And we we, we become poor and poorer day by day. Well, the reason is because we they have robbed us of our right to gold and silver money and they don't circulate. And they have gradually pushed gold and silver money out of circulation. And I, I'll won't go into the history of that, but, but just take my word for it. That's what they did. So what that means is we have to use the money that they issue. It's their private money. It's not public money like gold and silver. So how do you get out of that system? Because it's so hard to find somebody who will accept gold and silver and do business with you that way. Well, Catherine Fitz and I, Catherine has a, service called Solari.com. Catherine Fitz and I set up a gold and silver payment calculator. The website is called silverandgoldourmoney.com. And you can go to that uh, website and you can punch in any dollar amount and it will tell you how you can pay that in gold or silver. So what we're trying to do is to get people to use gold and silver. it's it's worse, really, than I'm telling you, because it's not only that they're eating up your all the wealth that you hold in dollars; they're they're constantly taxing that, taking money away from you. But it's also that they are setting up a system of central bank digital currencies to enhance their control to give them more perfect control over your wealth and your spending. And this is, the, this is not my crazy idea. This is not a conspiracy theory. Go, go to the, um, just, just go search central bank digital currencies and you'll find all kinds of articles about them and you'll see that they've been working for a couple of years, the Fed has, and they've got right now five pilot projects for digital currency. Well, what is a central bank digital currency? It's not cryptocurrency. Don't don't confuse them. It is a central. It is a currency issued by the central bank. They'll, you'll have an account with them, and what they want to do is to push cash completely out of the system. Well, cash is freedom, right? Y'all understand that cash is Absolutely. freedom. Absolutely. So when they control all of your money then they control your spending too. And so if they decide that you're a deplorable person, all they do is flip the switch and you're out of money. You starve to death. And I I mean, that sounds like an exaggeration, but look, things always go as far as they can go, right? People always take things as far as they can go. And that's what that's what central banks will do with this. It's no secret that government is setting up a totalitarian state and has been for the last 40, 50 years, increasingly in the last 20 years. So why wouldn't they do that too? The answer is there's no reason. So anyway, um, what we wanna do is to get people using gold and silver money among themselves. And specifically, we think that the, the cure for local, that's part of the cure for local economies. Now you asked me about the Fordson tractor, so let me talk about that. yes, please the um, the amer- the United States used to be think of it as kind of a an economy mm. of economies. It was sort of a a national economy that was composed of a lot of local economies, and within those local economies there was kind of a self-sufficiency. That is, the the money circulated between the farms and the the towns or cities round and round. Let me explain to you what I mean. Farmers raised all their own motive power. That was horses and mules. And they raised their own fuel. About a third of their land was devoted to, to hay and grain for the animals. And so they didn't really use a lot of, cash. They didn't get a lot of cash. They would sell once a year their crops, and then that gave them some cash, and they, then they would go into town and buy whatever they needed, and then the people in town were buying, in turn, food from them. So there's a circular cash flow. You follow what I'm saying? There's a circular cash flow. So what happened in 1917 was Ford and introduced the Fordson tractor. Well, what happened? Well, farmers started buying that tractor because they found out they could do a lot more work with it. They could get their work done faster. And so they they bought the tractor. But what that meant, don't miss this, what that meant was that now they had to send money away to Detroit to pay for the tractor. Now they had to send money to Standard Oil in New York to pay for their fuel. Now every year a big chunk of that money they were getting had to go back out of the community to those other places. So what they did was they, they planted and they planted more and more. They pulled out, they they planted fence row to fence row. That wasn't enough. So they pulled out the fence rows and planted them. And then boom, in 1920 the first agricultural depression hit. Ten years before the other depression hit. And the reason was because well, one of the reasons was because they were over they were overproducing. They they were producing more than they could produce more than the economy wanted to consume, especially with the end of World War One. And so they, they started going bankrupt. And um in fact my my late wife's grandfather had a farm down in Mississippi and he was raising cotton and he kept his cotton off the market. That is he was storing it in Memphis for years because the price of cotton kept going up and up and up. And then all of a sudden it dropped to five cents a pound and he lost everything. And that story was repeated all over the country, not just in the South, but all over the country. So there's been an agricultural depression since then during the great depression, Roosevelt and the federal government started to help, help farmers. Well, listen, there's a secret about government money. You know what the secret is? All government money comes with a sock in the jaw. All government money comes with a sock in the jaw. You can bet Uh, on it. You may not see it first. They may not throw the blow at first, but I guarantee you, they're going to punch you in the jaw at some point or the other. So farmers... Have been have been victimized, and agriculture has been victimized by the federal government and the 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 whole agricultural establishment, the the U.S. Department of Agriculture kept telling these farmers, "You got to industrialize. You industrialize. You got to get big or get out. Get big or get out." Let me just tell you something. This is a point of fact. I talked to Joel Salatin a couple of weeks ago and joel said that his farm which is the opposite of an industrial farm his farm is four times as productive as any other farm in his county so oh, even though yeah. see see there's this false efficiency that we're that's held out in front of us that oh you got to you got to be you got to get big or you can't make money you got to get bigger and bigger you you're going to make it up on the volume no you're not going to make it up on the volume that's like the two guys who were buying watermelons for 50 cents a piece down in Louisiana and driving them up to Chicago and selling them for 25 cents. And man, they were doing a land office business. They could just as many, many as they, the watermelons they could buy, they could, they could sell them up in Chicago. And so one of them looked at the other one, finally, one time he said, man, you know, we're buying these watermelons for 50 cents and we're carrying them up to Chicago and selling them for a quarter we got to do something. The other guy said, yeah, you're right. We got to get a bigger truck. Well, now that's what the federal government told the farmer. You got to get a bigger truck. And and it, it hasn't worked. It ain't, It isn't working today. But now the farmer is in debt. And production in the United States, and this is where the monetary system comes in, production in the United States has been replaced by debt. Instead of producing something in the United States, we borrow money to consume. And you can't, you can't do that forever. Eventually, you destroy your economy, and that's pretty much what we've done. So the the thing is that in, in the process of industrializing agriculture, local farms and local communities have been gutted and depopulated. I mean, you can drive... Anywhere in the country, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with the South because I've done it and I've looked around, and you see these local communities where they used to be thriving local communities. There's nobody now. There's nobody. Everybody's moved to town. There are no, you know, there are very few farmers because they use all these two hundred fifty thousand dollar machines to do the work for them. So, what I suggest is that. We need, to, we need to patronize local farmers. We need to buy our food from them. Look, in Tennessee, there used to be 10,000 dairies. Ten, Tennessee is great grazing land. Today, there are about 300. Why does it make sense that we buy milk from 2,000 miles away, from California or, or Florida? Why? How can that possibly make sense? It doesn't. No, what it, it absolutely
0: doesn't.
2: Yeah. But what it means is that people in Tennessee can't make a living farming. Now Now today, with the kind of technology that, that and techniques that Joel Salton has taught the world, a farmer with 60, 40, 60, or 100 acres can make a decent living. He can make a decent living if he cuts out the middleman and goes directly to the consumer. Exactly, so, yeah. Yeah, so if you buy from your local farmer, what you're doing is helping to rebuild your local community. You follow on see you're restoring that cash flow, you're rebuilding that cash flow so that local businesses can come back in your in your uh in your local economy. I mean, local businesses have been driven out everywhere by the the uh, uh, chain stores and by this concentration of wealth that I've mentioned that that is a result of the monetary system. So what we'd like to do is to tell people, look, try to use gold and silver with your local farmer. And that's one of the things that we put up the uh, uh, gold and silver payment calculator for, was to enable people to do that so it's not so foreign for them to do it. And at any rate, that's the the idea. Well, there was like a
0: A bunch of great information in there. I took notes on things I just wanted to touch on. You know, you mentioned uh, they force us to use their money, and the Federal Reserve has a target goal of at least 2% of inflation every year. And if we just assume that. That's all they're going to do is 2% inflation. Essentially every year that you put money in a savings account, you lose 2% of your, your purchasing power because it has inherently lost value due to, you know, printing more money or just borrowing, as you say, borrowing it into existence. And that was why I just gravitated to the gold and silver and the cryptocurrencies and you mentioned the the digital currency for the banks versus cryptocurrency and to me that big difference is that cryptocurrency some some of the good or better cryptocurrencies of all of them are deregulated they're not tied to a government entity and a lot of the good ones are hard capped so that inflation can't really do to that currency what has happened to the U.S. dollar.
2: Well, let me go back to what you said about inflation, okay? Would to God, would to God it was true that all they inflated was 2% a year. Let Let me ask you a question. How do you know when somebody who works for the federal government or the central bank is lying. How do you know? Um, His lips are moving. His <laughs> lips are moving. They, they lie constantly. And all of those federal government reports on in, inflation and, and unemployment and all of those economic reports, they're lies. If you... if They, they constantly... Move the goalposts. They change the standard, and so you can't you can't make any long-term comparisons about inflation. But you and I both know that it's way more than two, any two percent a year. It's way way more than that. And it, anyway, if if it, let's say it's let's say it's seven percent, the rule of seventy-two says that. If they're just inflating seven percent, then in about ten years they will have the value of the currency. So I, I just wish they they were inflating just two percent or seven percent. I think it's way more than that. It's way way more than that. And remember what they call. Let me let me explain something to you. Inflation is not a rise in prices. That's the result of inflation. Inflation is when the central bank creates new money. They they create, that's what inflation is. They increase the money supply. And that causes prices to rise. So the cause is the increase in the money supply. The effect is the rising prices. You you with me on that? So far. I know that they talk about rising prices as if they were that were inflation, but it's not. Now, I want to... The, the measure of how much they're inflating is how much the Fed's balance sheet increases. The reason for that is in order to create money, the Fed buys something. They buy debt. They buy federal government debt. They monetize that debt, or they buy some other kind of debt. When they do that, they create money. So that shows up on their balance sheet. Their, the Fed's balance sheet, since September 2008, has increased 8.9 times it's doubled in about 15 months since March 2020 you the, the the idea that inflation is only 1% is preposterous it didn't it doesn't all show up in consumer prices and, as I said, they change the measurement. They change the goalpost, move the goalposts. So you can't really make good comparison. You can't make accurate comparisons. But the point is the inflation is much, much greater than they tell you it is.
0: This is just so much to to take in. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, That's the whole point of why we started looking towards hard currencies and in gold and silver. And I, I know Rob, you had some questions about the adoption of gold and silver and how to get into it. If you wanted to touch on that.
1: Yeah, I guess like i really, I've agreed with everything and I even agree with the concept of the gold and the silver. I guess my thing is how and I know it has to start with your know, local communities and, and that kind of stuff, rebuilding that, but really like, how do you get started? Like, you know, getting the gold, you know, getting everybody to kind of jump on that train and, and being able to actually pay for stuff in gold, even if at, at a basic level, because you have to have at least some amount of adoption to well even if it's just your local community to be able to, to do this. So how does that, how do you kind of foresee that playing out?
2: Well, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, I guess you have to change people's minds. I'll, I'll give you an example. This, this happened back in, oh, about 1975. I was living in Little Rock, Arkansas, and there was a fellow who ran a barbecue joint. And up on the wall, he had a list of prices. And he had one price if you paid in paper money, and he had another price if you paid in silver. And there was a big difference, you know. It was four, five, six times back then. It'd be 20 times today. But it, it's it's that kind of thing. It's just you know, you, you just have to talk to people about it, and they people once you once you begin to talk to them about it, and people begin to understand that they're being robbed by paper money, that there is nothing behind it, then then they begin to then they're ready to listen because what you're saying has to do with their self interest and their self protection. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that, that makes sense for sure. Uh, I guess it's just getting people to, to realize the reality of the situation we're in um, and, you know, going back to the whole, you know, U uh, S financial currency or whatever, like that should scare people like that. Is, that is really bad. And uh, I don't think people truly understand what it means for them moving forward. Um
2: so, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, let me give you an let me kind of, kind of hint at what what it means going forward. You can go to the history books and you can study hyperinflations. The a hyperinflation is where the money supply is just growing is just metastasizing so fast that the 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 money printing can't keep up with the loss in value. And you can look at something like the hyperinflation in 1923 in Germany, and where the mark went to one billionth, dropped to one billionth of its pre-war value. You can see the same thing today going on in Zimbabwe. You can see the same thing going on in Venezuela. And when that happens, you have to have some other money to use. You have to have something else you can use for money or else you have but better have a lot of half pints of whiskey that you can barter with something's going to be necessary right yeah for sure because people people get to the point where they just don't they won't take the paper and of course that means there's economic chaos
1: yeah well, that, i think we've we've gone through a period here recently where you know the inflation really hasn't been noticeable and i think a lot of people in our generation you know, don't really understand what that means, but I think they're about to. And that's kind of what led to the the whole debt issue we have right now. Just, you know, you know, the whole mindset of, you know, I want this now, I'll worry about paying it later. You know, that's kind of the bad mindset that a lot of people have adopted. And um, it kind of takes your mind away from some of the stuff we're talking about. So it's very interesting. And
2: what you, what you have to realize though, is if you, you can go to the federal reserve, uh, the bank side of the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, and you can get all the charts you want on debt, and they're horrifying. Federal government debt, consumer debt, uh, business debt. It doesn't matter what it is. You know what a hockey stick chart is? A hockey stick chart is one looking from, from left to right that goes right along on the bottom axis, and then all of a sudden it goes straight up. And that's what they look like. That's what the charts of debt look like. And so at some point, see, there's a, there's a boom-bust cycle that goes with, with debt. The, what happens is banks create money. They loan that money into existence, and that makes it look like the interest rate is low, and so people ought to invest in, in productive equipment that will make more stuff right, because when the interest rate is low, it means that people are saving a lot so that they'll, they're gonna buy stuff in the future. But what if the interest rate is not really low? What if it's just being suppressed by all the new money the government is creating? Which is the case, that's what's happening. So it gives a false signal to all those entrepreneurs out there and they build factories to make stuff that nobody wants. So how the cycle runs is that there's a big boom when everybody's building, 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 and they're start producing, producing, producing. And all of a sudden, somebody says, hey, I want my money. I, I'm not able to sell all of this production, so I'm gonna have to sell out. And that overproduction brings a crash on. And then you've got this liquidation. And all of those assets that have been created have to be liquidated. So think of it in turn. An example of that was the real estate crash in 2006 through 2008. They were. I apologize. This has never happened
0: to us. I guess Zoom uh, changed their their service to no longer be free, which is to be expected. But when we cut off, Uh, you were talking about the 06, 08 uh, real estate market.
2: Yeah, you well, know, it, it, it was an example of how the boom crashes and the bottom drops out of prices. And the, the the solution to this boom bust is to stand back and let prices fall as much as they'll fall until demand returns. But that's exactly what government never does. It goes in there, and tries to keep things up by creating more money and pushing that money into the economy. So then look at 2008, what happened? They bailed out the banks instead of, instead of letting them go bust with the bad loans that they had, that they had issued the federal reserve bailed them out and bought all these mortgage-backed securities that weren't, weren't worth squat and bailed them out. So, um, we have this continual boom bust cycle like that, and the only <laughs> the only way to stop it is to stop them creating money. you know it it just you have to go to an, a different monetary system.
0: yeah, and you know, I guess with gold and silver. Um, the one thing that has me hung up and it may not be a hangup for you because it's kind of the entire driving force behind your theory and your ideal is it's very hard to do commerce or business or anything like that over any amount of distance with gold and silver. But I guess that's not really a downside to you because you're, you're trying to bring the local economy back to where you no longer go to Food Lion, you go to the farmer down the street, or you don't go to Lowe's, you go to a mom and pop building supply store. Is that, is that correct?
2: Well, that, that's kind of the idea, but the reason that, you know, you, the payment systems for the dollar are very complicated, are very diverse now. Right. I mean, you can use credit cards, you can use debit cards, you can use Venmo, all of these different, there are all these different ways to to make payments. But all of those payments do the same thing. They transfer dollars from one person to another. Because we don't have gold and silver in circulation, we can't do that. We can't transmit can't transfer them electronically. You follow what I'm saying? So what we've got to do is Rebuild is build those payment systems. So I understand it's a lot of work, but what I'm what I'm saying is, if if we have a collapsing currency, there will be plenty of people ready to learn about gold and silver and ready to use them, no matter what the what the uh, obstacles are.
0: Right. And going back to what you said about the individual or the business that offered two prices, one for the dollar and one for silver, that's not uncommon. There's a lot of businesses, including the one I run. It's a it's a small um, woodworking business, essentially, where I I accept up until now, I've accepted cash or cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. And I give ten to fifteen percent off if you're willing to pay in Bitcoin, and it doesn't work for everybody. But a lot of times, people will go, "Well, I want to save ten to fifteen percent. Well, how do I do that? How do I get Bitcoin? That kind of thing." Um, and if you, you know, put that idea towards gold and silver, the adoption of gold and silver is likely to go up. So it kind of solves itself as a problem. You get to go away from the U.S. dollar and integrate people into that, that form of currency. And that, in turn, builds the economy of your local community.
2: Right. What, do you, what you have to understand is we're talking about building alternative institutions, When you talk about restoring local economies, you're talking about building alternative institutions outside the government. Not necessarily against the government, but outside the government. We're building institutions that work for us. We're not making anybody join the institution. We're just building alternatives that work for us. So you have a
0: choice, right? No one's saying you have to. You have to go to how we choose to do commerce. No one's saying you have to do this or do that. It's just an alternative option to give you more freedom, essentially. Right. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, and I mean that's exactly why I got into cryptocurrency um, because a lot of my my projects. You know, some of them are smaller, and I can ship to other areas of the country, and cryptocurrency is great for that. You don't have to do a face-to-face transaction, um, not that you have to with gold or silver, but a majority of my transactions are face-to-face. So now I'm actually beginning to kind of dip my toes into that market where I can actually accept gold and silver as payment, and that's one of the things that struck a chord with me when I heard you speak is... I want that freedom. I don't want to be tied to the U.S. dollar. I want to have a choice
2: of the currency that I get to use. Well, let me ask you a question. Why oh do you all like cryptocurrencies? What do, you, what do you see as the advantages of cryptocurrencies?
0: So I'll, I'll go first because Rob is not huge. On cryptocurrencies, he's still on the fence. So, um, the the thing I like about I'm not a, a a blanket as a blanket statement. I am not a cryptocurrency bug. I am a Bitcoin. Uh, I'm a fan of Bitcoin. I like the hard cap to you know combat inflation. I like that it's ran by blockchain and proof of work. Um, I like that. It is easy to make a transaction from afar. So if I do have to ship something, I don't have to worry about payment in a matter of, you know, a couple minutes to a couple hours, I can receive my payment and then put it through a a mixer and essentially wash it away from my name while still maintaining custody of it. That, is the main reason. And the other reason is it's, in my opinion, I think it's a really good alternative to the U S dollar, not saying that gold and silver aren't, it's just the one I was introduced to first, if that makes sense. But as for Rob, um, I'll let you speak for yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, So I'm very much in the middle of the gold versus the Bitcoin. And for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, I think it's an excellent alternative, which is what we were just emphasizing. It's it's an alternative to the system that we're currently in. Um, I think you can, it has a lot of the same benefits that gold and silver does. I guess the one thing that gets me is like you said, the ease of, it's easier with Bitcoin, you know, to purchase stuff from afar. You don't have to like, like, how do you send gold? If you want to pay for something, how do you send gold and all, It just gets kind of complicated for me there. But I think they're both they're both good alternatives. Um, and I've you know I'm trying to decide which way I want to go with it honestly. Um, and you know, we talked to, in our first episode, you know, the difference in you know what we what some people see Bitcoin as an investment versus a, a strategy. And I I don't think it's an investment at all, but I do think it's a legitimate um, alternative. And I guess. Another thing that kind of gets me is, you know, we talked about adoption. So there has to be some level of adoption in order to to use the system in whatever scale you know economy we're talking about. But the idea of having you know these big sharks like you know Elon Musk, you know, you know, say something offhand and, and have Bitcoin react a certain way, like to me that that's taking on a level of uh, adoption that's just almost too much. If that makes sense. Um, But I've been, you know, since I heard about about gold a couple of years ago, I've been, you know, wanting to get into it. I just haven't really done it. Uh, But that's probably where I would lean at the moment.
0: Yeah. And I I would say one more thing about Bitcoin. I I don't want people to believe I'm disillusioned and that I'm one of the people that's like Bitcoin to the moon. It's going to be, you know. If you don't have Bitcoin, you're going to be left behind. And if you have Bitcoin, you're going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams. I don't believe that. I do believe there are two options for Bitcoin. Ultimately, at the end of Bitcoin's life, I think it'll either be worth nothing or it will be worth a lot more than it is now. And given the direction that things are going with adoption um, and take out the possibility of internet going down or something like that, I think that it is more likely to gain value than to go back to, you know, a penny for one Bitcoin. All right.
2: So, let me me see if I understand. Let me see if I can summarize what y'all are saying. You're saying that you you like the privacy of Bitcoin. I think you, you like the fact that it's, For you, easy to transfer, and uh, you you like that it's outside the dollar system, right? And I I guess you feel like it's just a more valuable currency, and you didn't say so, but it's also a currency that grows in value rather than diminishes in value. Typically,
0: yes. I would say overall, yes. All of
2: that I agree with. Okay, let me change directions. There are only two kinds of money, two theories of money, since Aristotle's time. One of those is what I call the social convention theory. Money is just a social convention. If you and I say that wampum or tobacco or marijuana buds or whatever it is, is money, it's just a social convention. We just agree on it, right? Right? That's all there is to it. It doesn't have to have any value at all of itself. That's the social convention theory. The barter theory is that for every transaction, that every transaction has to be something for something. In other words, let's take let's take a perfect example of the social conventions uh, theory, the U.S. dollar. Okay, if you have a goat, and I say... I'll give you my goat, Cody, if you give me $50. You give me the goat, something, and I give you the dollars. Nothing. Because there's nothing that backs them, right? It's just social convention. And if everybody out there changes his mind tomorrow, buddy, you're out of luck and out of a goat. Okay. Now, (laughs) the, the the barter theory says every transaction has to be something for something. You give me the goat. I give you two gold coins, right? Those are the only two theories of money. And my the, the social convention theory is also called fiat money. That's just a Latin word that means let there be because the money is just spoken into existence. So the thing I don't like about Bitcoin is that it's a fiat money. Now, I'll admit, it's not the government behind it. It's computer nerds, but the question is, do I trust them any more than I trust government when value is concerned? You trust them. You, you, I, and and listen. I've had a lot of conversations about Bitcoin, uh, and I'm I'm not as hostile as you might think. But the thing <laughs> is, in the at the end of the day, it's still fiat money. And worse, if there's no internet, I'm stuck. I lost it. You know, if I can't access it by the internet, I'm done. I'm toast. So uh, that's a that's a there's a big difference in that sense between gold and silver and and uh, Bitcoin. The other thing I don't like about Bitcoin is this: if you look at charts of commodities or stocks or Bitcoin, there's a stock pa- there's a chart pattern. Yeah, I sent you the chart. There's a chart pattern. Yeah. Where you've got a parabolic curve and that chart that chart pattern is really the kiss kiss of death um, what it means is that a market is we call it blowing off and that uh, it's it's going to drop so that that makes me very nervous about bitcoin I saw the same pattern back. Uh, when was it? In 2017, when it it did the same thing, went up to twenty thousand dollars, dropped back to two. I don't know. I'm I don't yeah. keep up with the numbers. Something yeah, like dropped that. back and to like it, four. Yeah. Up, yeah, yeah. And in the last two years, it's gone from there up to sixty thousand. Then it's collapsed again, and it's about thirty-five now, forty something like that.
0: Last I checked this morning, yeah, it was like in the mid
2: forties. That's a lot of volatility. Oh, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? That's a lot of volatility.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you can't like. I don't care how passionate you are. See, there's that passionate word again about about Bitcoin. You can't deny its volatility. And at the end of the day, I still agree that gold and silver are the ultimate cash. Bitcoin is not the ultimate cash because with you think about cash, typically people don't stick a, a $50 bill in the mail and send it off to somebody. That's just that's just not how it works. Um, you you likely wouldn't do the same thing with, you know, uh, an ounce of gold, Uh but for hand-to-hand, face-to-face transactions, there is no better way than gold and silver, in my opinion. Um, I, I, I don't believe there is a uh, there is a world where you have to pick one or the other. I'm more of a diversification kind of person, where I have, you know, a percentage of Bitcoin. Set aside in my savings. I have a percentage in the U.S. dollar, and you know more tradi- traditional um, means of saving wealth and storing value for later use. Um, I want to get into the gold and silver though, because I I do agree it is the ultimate form of cash. And with the goal of restoring local communities, I hate to say it, you really don't need Bitcoin to do that. Like it solves problems, but there are better, there are better means to solve that problem. And I think gold and silver do solve that problem better than Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I think Bitcoin solves a, a larger issue that you don't necessarily need to tackle off the bat. And I think, you know, Franklin hit it on the head From he described how I feel about Bitcoin better than I have been to up until this point. It's just like, I don't, <laughs> I just don't trust it enough to just you know dive head on first into it. So, but yeah, I think if you start with the the local community, and it's really whatever benefits you, you and your community. If you live in a community where Bitcoin is what you use, then Bitcoin holds more value. If you live in a community where it's gold and silver, then gold and silver has more value. So it's you got to start small, I guess. Is, um,
0: the interesting thing is community. Um, the definition of the world community, the word community has slightly changed over the last 30 years. I'd say community back in the 1950s was we all live in, um, you know, some town in Tennessee, that town and those who live around us can, are what consists of our community. That's what makes it up. And now community is a keystroke away. Um, you can get online and talk to people you know, or friends, or make friends, or talk to people around the world. And the internet, in my mind, is the biggest threat to, or the maybe not the, the threat isn't the right word, maybe the biggest adversary of local economy expenditure. So if we're trying to keep money in our locality or in our community, the internet makes that you know, so much harder, because if I'm looking for, you know, I don't know, uh, a bottle of Febreze, you know, I can go on Amazon or, you know, whatever store I want online and get it within 48 hours. And I think that has also attributed to the loss of the sense of community.
2: Well, it has. That's, I mean, that's exactly right. Well, let me, let me Come down to some specifics. Back back to what you said about gold and silver being cash. They're the ultimate financial assets. They're the only financial assets that are not simultaneously somebody else's liability. In other words, right. if you got a you got a bond, somebody has to make good on it. If you got a stock, they got to make a profit, and so forth. And even Bitcoin is that way. Somebody else has to make good through the internet. You you got to make good on it. But let me just for your readers, for your listeners who may not know anything about gold and silver, let me let me tell you what to do. Let me tell you how to go. I, and I've been in the gold and silver business 41 years, so I hope I've I've learned something. The in silver, the most liquid, most divisible form is U.S. ninety cent ninety percent silver coin. That's the dimes, quarters, and halves, minted before 1965. There are 14 dimes in an ounce. That's the smallest minted piece of precious metal I know about. So uh, that that's where you need to start. You can also get one ounce pure silver coins. Those are those are the kind of things. They're in a small enough uh, package, so to speak, that uh, you you'll be able to use them easy, easily. What compare that to a gold coin? So if you get a one-ounce gold coin, you're looking at something today like $1,850. How many times do you go shopping with an $1,850 bill? The answer is not many. <laughs> oh, oh, my right. gosh. Exactly. And this was my I,
0: – I brought this point up to Rob. Exactly that, like, you know, the di- how
2: divisible is, is gold and silver? Well, it, the divisibility has been – has been one advantage of it. And of course, the silver has a lower unit value, which means that for most of mankind's history, silver has been the money of daily commerce, not gold. The smallest gold coin that that's made now is a Mexican two peso. And let me tell you what that's worth. Hold on. It's worth about $75. So... It, and it's a 20th of an ounce. It's less than a 20th of an ounce. So I would start out with silver. And I'd find a local dealer I could trust, not one who's going to gouge you, but somebody who's got reasonable prices. Or you can buy online. I mean, <laughs> there you go again. But the 90% silver coin right now is is uh, high. It has a high premium on them for reasons I won't go into but that'll be gone in the next couple of months. But I would start with the 90% silver coin or the one ounce silver rounds. And then after I had pretty good stock of that, I'd start thinking about small gold coins like French 20 francs. Low premium is what we're talking about. Always lowest cost per ounce, but whatever kind of low premium gold coins I could get. And I, you know, I said that we have, uh, I publish a daily commentary on over the internet and you can sign up for that for free at my, my website, the-moneychanger.com. There's a gray box there right on the front page. It says subscribe. And I publish wholesale prices every day. You can't get those anywhere else on the internet. It's wholesale prices and it'll show you what the lowest, lowest price per ounce is for various forms. So I really recommend that you, you look at that and, um, You know, just get started, you know, just even if you can only buy a little bit to get started, just treat it like a savings account and start accumulating gold and silver. And, you know, that was
0: like my big thing is I just needed to know how to get into it because it's always whether it's a mental um, roadblock for me or, you know, it's actually as challenging as my mind makes it out to be it was always intimidating to get into gold and silver when you know nothing about it. It's the fear of the unknown. Um, And I have already made the decision that I will start putting some of my assets. Well, they're not assets right now, but I will be converting of my dollars into gold and silver because it's like you said, it's an asset without being a liability. And a lot of people get those confused. You know, they think my house is an asset. Well, ish, kind of, maybe if, you know, you can maintain, if it maintains its value, it's an asset, but it's also a liability as we found out, you know, 12
2: years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, and, and the asset that's the hardest to sell.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, maybe not right now, but you know, right now houses are going in five, six days. But I but think, I think we're on the precipice of maybe not quite as drastic, but another real estate bubble. I know that's something you've been looking into, Rob. Um, but I just feel another one coming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was my you know biggest barrier to was just not knowing what i was doing but uh i definitely see the value in it
0: yeah um i'm going to skim my notes real quick see if there's any pressing questions sir um You've answered almost all of our questions without us asking them, which has been awesome. Um, I'd love to talk all night, but I know that you have to get home. Uh, and unfortunately we're on a time limit now. Uh, I'm going to put your, your websites. I wrote them down and I'm going to put them in the show notes for all our listeners to, uh, to go visit and sign up for your newsletter. Um Besides that, is there anything else that you wanted to say, Rob, or ask Franklin?
1: No, I think yeah, we covered everything I wanted to go over.
0: Is, is, Let me is mention any...
1: just
2: one other thing.
0: Yep, I was going to ask if you had anything you'd like to add. Yeah, if, you're,
2: if your listeners are interested in buying silver or gold, they could, my, my son's actually run the company that sells silver and gold now, and that's called Volunteer Precious Metals they can go to volunteerpreciousmetals.com and there's a even we've got even a a monthly plan where they can buy a little bit every month uh a minimum of $300 a month but you don't have to buy every month so that's called the monthly acquisition plan but all that's on the on their website volunteerpreciousmetals.com
0: yeah and i've been doing something similar with bitcoin through swan bitcoin where Essentially, uh, every time I get paid or, you know, once a month or once every two months, whatever it may be, you can contribute X amount of dollars to Bitcoin. And I've been doing that for a while now. Um, I recently uh, knocked back the the dollars that I were I was committing to it because I knew I'd want to be dabbling my toes in the gold and silver market. So that's probably something I'm going to look into um, but Franklin, uh, if there's nothing else you want to add, I mean, if you want to say anything else, the floor is yours. Well, I
2: think you've just about exhausted everything I knew today.
0: I <laughs> highly
2: doubt that. <laughs> um, hey, listen, it's been, it's been fun talking to y'all and, yeah. uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Sir, it
0: was a pleasure to have you on. It was a pleasure to hear you speak at the Rogue Food Conference. Um, If anybody else is looking to go to the Rogue Food Conference, I highly recommend it. Um, You get to hear some fantastic speakers like Franklin. You get to meet them, pick their brains, and it was just an awesome experience to be surrounded by like-minded people. Um, If you are a younger person like Rob and I, you know, in your 20s or 30s, you may be the outcast there, but um, I highly recommend you going. There's a renaissance right now among us that people are moving back to the land and homesteading like we are or farming like Franklin. And um, I couldn't be happier to see it. And it's a great platform to get out there and really network and see what it's all about. So, Franklin, thanks for coming on. Uh, it, was, it was
2: an absolute pleasure. Well, it was a pleasure for me, too. And I thanks, thanks for the opportunity. God bless y'all. God bless, sir. Have a good one. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, that was an
0: absolutely awesome conversation with Franklin. If you guys haven't already, uh, be sure to check out his websites. He mentioned I'm posting them in the show notes. Um, I know I'm absolutely dumbfounded, man. I just so much knowledge in a man. And, uh, I just, I don't have words.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was definitely one of those episodes. I know, you know, in our past experience, we've had people come on, but like, it's one of those experiences where you almost forget you're actually doing the podcast. You're almost just like listening to them talk and you're, and you're learning so much, but you know, you're actually responsible for running it. Uh, it was a very good conversation. And, uh, you know, I'm already looking up some of the stuff he recommended. So definitely a good feeling.
0: Yeah. And, um, like Rob said, just to echo that, we, we, we try to keep it running for y'all, but a lot of times when we have guests on, I mean, this is the first guest appearance on the Appalachian Agris, but if you're familiar with our old show, a lot of times when we have these guests on, we're learning so much as well that it's almost hard to keep it going. So uh, thank you all for hanging in there with us um, as we learn, as you learn. And as we work together to rebuild our community of, you know, liberty minded people and focus on how to make y'all and us more free. So uh, as always, guys, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check us out on Twitter at app and uh, check us out on Instagram at Appalachian So till next time.